Hey, pull up a chair. Tax on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. By all indications, we are going on to New Hampshire victorious. We're going to walk out of here with uh, our share of delegates. We don't know exactly what it is yet, but we feel good about where we are. And look, so, so it's on to New Hampshire. We know there's delays, but we know one thing. We are punching above our weight. I imagine, have a strong feeling that at some point, the results will be announced. And when those results are announced, I have a good feeling we're going to be doing very, very well here in Iowa. Tonight showed that our path to victory is to fight hard for the changes Americans are demanding, changes that Democrats, independents, and Republicans are demanding. Tonight showed that our agenda isn't just a progressive agenda. It isn't just a democratic agenda. It's an American agenda. Well, welcome, everybody, to the morning after here on Hacks on Tap. We're having our own challenges, just like the Iowa State Party. What a a thing last night. So in the middle of the night, Axelrod got a call from CNN, big cooking segment this morning, and they needed somebody to wear the chef's hat. So they they yanked the uh, expensive chain, and he was unable to make our recording this morning. Now, we thought about delaying it, but then you don't get to hear us talk about nothing till later since we don't yet have results. But luckily for us, we had ace political consultant, friend of the show, all-around bomb vivant, Robert Gibbs, scheduled to be our guest hack today as we looked at the caucus. He just returned from there doing a little, uh, I guess I'll call it political tourism. So once again, Robert, thank you for pinching uh, in for uh, Mr. Axelrod, and welcome to Hacks on Tap. Well, I'm just glad I could bring the type of clarity that this result demands. (laughs) well you know i just got into the app and i found out that uh, vladimir putin just carried ankeny with 100 percent. so what do we make of this thing um what do we think happened and what do we think the impact of the slow motion results that hopefully will be later today if they can just get 99 county chairman to call the state committee which doesn't seem like like a heavy lift to me but assuming we get answers after lunch sometime this afternoon of what happened what What's your overall take? Well, I, I, lots of different takes. I mean, obviously, it's terrible for the Democratic Party. It's it's terrible for the Iowa Democratic Party. Um, but I, look, I, I still think, as you said, we'll get we'll get some level of result. Uh, it will still mean something. It won't mean quite uh, what it probably would have last night. Mm-hmm. Uh, people aren't going to get the bounce that they likely would have. Uh, but I still think. Uh, as I said, I think the teacher has maybe delayed the exam, uh, but it hasn't been postponed, and we'll we'll know the results. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I think there was a little bit of a rush to the media, who, of course, both now hate the Iowa caucus and also invented it by covering the hell out of it like the Super Bowl for years and years and years, um, that, oh, it doesn't mean anything now because the news cycle is crowded with the State of the Union tonight. But the, the fact is, try as many might, including Amy Klobuchar, who I think gets the award for, well, apparently I won. I'm leaving now, <laughs> knowing damn well from her field staff that she probably got crushed. 
Um, you, you can't outrun the reality. There will be a winner and loser. And from what we know from the entrance poll, which is not infallible, right. but is the only real data we have other than what the campaigns know. And they know a lot because the ones of organization would get reports back, as you well know, from the caucus site, and they'd run their own basic data. Um, it could have been real big news last night, and it might be real big news this morning. If, indeed, Pete Buttigieg did really well, and Joe Biden, the front runner, could be even fourth or potentially fifth place. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think uh, if you look at the entrance uh, polling and, and you think through the anecdotal, you've had campaigns now, as you said, release sort of their own data. Um, I, I think some degree of Bernie Sanders and and Mayor Pete are one, two, and it may be quite frankly, ironically, this was some of this was caused by a desire for greater transparency that we weren't just going to have a winner. Yeah. We were going to have potentially three different winners. And you could see this play out in uh, getting this initial um, number uh, when they, when it comes out as to who showed up, and for whom did they initially align? Once you get realignment, um, I think Pete probably picked up a big chunk of voters. Um, and so I think each of them is going to have probably something to talk about in a positive way, uh, particularly Mayor Pete. Uh, I, I think by, de- you know, we're looking at probably, probably Elizabeth Warren in third. And I would say I also don't think Bernie Sanders needed a bounce. Um, to the degree that the others did, he's kind of got a built-in uh, fundraising set. But I, I, I agree with you. I think it is likely that that former Vice President Joe Biden finished fourth, uh, if not worse. And I think uh, there will be some genuine questions in the next few days as to the health, the enthusiasm, and the momentum of that campaign. As you mentioned, Mike, I was in Iowa. I went to five different events over a day and a half with my son, uh, really struck by the Biden event. It was in a tiny, tiny, tiny gymnasium. Um, the mm-hmm. organizers expected 200 people. There were there were more than 200, um, but it, it was um, it, it, this was not an event that was set up for a a campaign that was building momentum. Yeah. It, it it was it was purely designed to fill a small space and uh I thought he was pretty good at the at the event but I I think you could foretell the logistical challenges that the campaign was having based on what we saw. Yeah, you know, it's uh it's it's almost amusing on several levels. A week ago or 10 days ago, the conventional wisdom in D.C., which is all driven by reading polls on the Internet every morning, not any real grip. Oh, Biden's surging. He's back. It's all over. And that was because of that Emerson poll, which in as everybody uh, who's done this knows, it's very hard to get Iowans in the phone at the end because the campaigns are doing so much organizational phone calling. Why is Iowans unplug their phone? And of course, we can pull on the internet now too. There are all kinds of technologies, but it's tough. And there was a saga, of course, of the Des Moines Register final weekend poll that hit the rocks. But anyway, the easiest people to get on the phone are older voters. So a phone poll. Um, probably tagged a lot of older voters who said Biden. Biden got a tick in that data, even though it really wasn't a frame of who was going to participate in the caucus. The CW machine went into overtime. Oh, Biden's unstoppable. And I'm getting nervous at this point because I've been short Biden for a year and a half. In fact, I lost a bet with Bob Shrum at the USC Institute of Politics where we uh, both chip in because I said Biden wouldn't make it to Christmas. I was so 
so down on Biden before. But anyway, so there's this poll. Now Biden's invincible. Then the, the national press shows up uh, with less than your canny eye, but still can count heads at events over the last five days and say, wait a minute, Biden's yep. not selling any tickets here. Yep. So th- th- this thing was set up for the classic narrative of the front runner falls. Now the news is coming in slow motion. But, but I think the dynamic will still be that. If the front runner, Barack Obama's vice president, has gone from leading Iowa in the 40s to finishing fourth or fifth um, to the point where Amy Klobuchar's campaign manager is tweeting out that, look at us, we tied Biden on the perception that nobody's figured out Biden's so low. Uh, that, that, that is a real, a real, real blow to his race. And unless he gets something going quickly in New Hampshire, I think this whole South Carolina firewall thing with African-Americans they've hung so much on will be in trouble. And, and the other big story will be an openly gay, long-shot candidate, mayor of South Bend, has come from nowhere the potentially winner at least finishing the top two, uh, you know, in the in the in the second round of the Iowa caucus. That is huge for Buttigieg, who I think in some ways got sort of robbed last night of the media attention. But undoubtedly, if it happens, the fact will still be there today. Undoubtedly, he got robbed. I mean, I, I think a winning result in Iowa, he's going to get a huge bump in news coverage. That speech is going to go live at prime time. Uh, he's going to raise several million dollars on the internet. Some of that he will still do. It will be somewhat muted. I think one of the other things that I was struck at by looking at some of the entrance polling and, and looking at some of the anecdotal stuff is there was a real generational split. Uh, yep. you know, younger voters going uh, far and away for Bernie Sanders, but but he was getting very very few older voters. Uh, the flip side of that, Joe Biden getting almost nobody in the younger set. His entire coalition is made up of older voters. And I think when it's all is said and done in Iowa, you'll see uh, Pete getting uh, pulling a bit from everywhere. Some younger, some older, yep. some urban, some suburban, some rural. Uh, and so I think if anybody diagnoses how that was able to be put together, I think it will be the broadness of the coalition. You know, I think one thing that we should mention too that I think is strikes me as is really interesting waking up this morning. Again, we've had two campaigns that have kind of put out their own numbers. Both of them seem to say that turnout was below what it was in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think all of the debate that we were having in the lead up to Iowa was how much bigger was this going to be than 2008? As a reminder, in 2008, about 239, 240,000 people caucus. 170, 175,000 in 2016. If we're only at 155,000, what what does that say overall about uh, the enthusiasm? What does it say overall about Iowa? Uh, lots of questions. I think that that number uh, will likely generate. Yeah. Let before we go on to New Hampshire and the state of the race now, uh, as the big the big cleaver is going to come down out of these Iowa numbers when they finally show up. Let's talk a little bit about the caucus. So what apparently happened was some forward thinker in the Iowa party, and by the way, I officially now call with great huffiness, but but seriously, uh, for, um, boy, I'm trying to remember his first name, the Iowa chairman, Price. Anyway, he should resign. It's a fiasco. Somebody should take responsibility. Um, he did damage to not only the reputation of the Iowa party, but also to the, the caucus itself. But what apparently happened was they had an app, they downloaded it, they didn't train everybody, it wasn't part of the mandatory training, there are all kinds of problems. A lot of the, and you well know that often the party volunteers who run these caucuses 
uh, are stalwarts, and they've been at it a long time, which means they're not always, uh, as we say, spring chickens. And right. so the the app, I'm remembered of the, the big Romney uh, turnout app that was a similar fiasco. Um, they didn't know how to work it, so they weren't trained on it. So they did what they've always done. They tried to phone in, and the phone system didn't work. I mean, all this thing, we're not talking about a moon launch here. You have 99 county chairmen who call around to their precincts and gather up their numbers, and they either phone or they, the precinct people could have directly sent it in via app to the state party. So it, this is really about 99 phone calls, yet somehow that has paralyzed the entire Democratic primary. So my question for you is, do you think the Iowa caucus, already under fire for not being diverse enough and all the identity stuff that rules the Democratic Party these days, do you think we can uh, we can put a fork in it and it's done? And if so, what what may take the space? Because there's room for a non-primary at the beginning of the process. You know, it can't be a right. primary. There's New Hampshire, but it could be something else. And I can tell you the media combine for all the complaints last night likes to have contests to cover with winners and losers. So, yeah. so what, what's your crystal ball looking like for the Iowa caucus now? Well, I think you mentioned this, Mike, and I think it's important to understand that Iowa was under, as you said, a tremendous amount of fire. It is 85% white uh, in an ever-diverse Democratic Party. Uh, they were already having trouble with that. I think this makes the Iowa caucus, as we knew it, unsustainable. Uh, I'm happy to have gone over and seen the the candidates uh, and be able to say I was there at the last one because I think, by and large, this is over. Uh, now, I, I do think um, I do think there's something to be said about a process that requires the type of investment that Iowa required. You can't just go and plunk down $10 million and buy the two media markets that dominate 80% of the state. You, you've got to work it. And I think the real question for the Democratic Party is, are there places or is there a place that meets those diversity challenges for the country and the party that could do this. I, I, I'll name a couple that I love. One I know is near and dear to your heart. I think Michigan would be a good place to start some of this stuff mm-hmm. out. I think North Carolina would be a good place to start some of this out. Um, but I, I think we have seen the last of, uh, of the Iowa caucus as we knew it for the reasons we all saw last night, it turns out there is not an app for that. Uh, and uh, for what we had already been seeing the narrative around whether or not it's the right place to go. Yeah, I, it's interesting. I, I think, you know, people are saying, oh, change the whole system. That is really hard to do. New Hampshire will not let anybody. I mean, New Hampshire will move their primary up to tomorrow uh, if necessary to protect its first in the nation status. That is a core enterprise there. But there's room for a non-primary, a caucus. So I think there probably are people in Nevada thinking, you know, we're third now. Maybe we try to make the jump to be the new Iowa. The South Carolinians are very, very crafty. They've got a nice franchise now. But they could say, well, why not the South Carolina caucus and the uh, the New Hampshire primary are now the big two. We'll get even bigger. And then Michigan, which had tried it before. I think it was back in 88, the Michigan Republican, it was a caucus, and it was early. And it, of course, was a nightmare, kind of like Iowa. It didn't have as big of a problems, but there were challenges. But it, it's a swing state. It's diverse. That there, There's a, a good pitch, I think, for Michigan. Some people might say Georgia. But you get to these big states, running a caucus in them uh, becomes more complicated. And it also, 
uh, part of the appeal of the Iowa caucus is the fact that, you know, it's small and, and, and sort of invadable by small candidates with limited resources at the start. Now, I want to say one thing in defense of Iowa. The, the caucus fiasco was indefensible. There have been other caucus fiascos in the past. But I like Iowa. I've, I've enjoyed working on governor races there and Iowa caucuses. The Iowans, there's a joke, and I'm sure you've heard a version of this on the Democratic side in the campaign world, that when your when you're rented crappy fieldman car breaks down in Iowa versus New Hampshire, it's a different experience. When it breaks down in New Hampshire, you go to the ground, oh, Pepperidge Farm, that'll be two weeks and $300. When you do it in Iowa, they 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 feed you dinner and it's it's four bucks and they apologize and they get they work all night. There there no you 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 can't do an Iowa caucus unless maybe you're Amy Klobuchar. I'm beating up on her a lot right now, uh, and you're in eleventh place or whatever. But it is a hard experience to go through and not fall in love with Iowans. Um, and they take it seriously. They show up. It is a diverse state in everything but color. Seniors, farm, blue collar. You got UAW there. You got the suburbs of Polk County, which are in Des Moines, which are booming. So, you know, if, if I were the DNC chairman and last night hadn't happened, I would have pitched having two caucuses on that night first. One down south somewhere uh, to get the African American uh, electorate and Latino electorate better represented. But I would have tried to hang on to Iowa because there's so much about the actual campaigning process there. That's pretty great. It is. It's it is. It's quaint. It's quirky. Um, and I, I think, as you said, I think we've got to figure out how to get rid of the quirks, got to figure out how to get rid of um, the impreciseness of it all. But there is some great human quality about it. And I will tell you, Mike, uh, um, like I said, spending time in the state over the weekend we were able to see four events on Saturday, right? Right. Just in Eastern Iowa. And I saw the same people at each event and they're Iowans that were undecided heading into that last weekend. The entrance poll said there were probably a third of the vote that was still like that. You saw it on TV last night, people that are going to the caucus, still unsure, being convinced by their neighbors, thinking about this stuff. It It is a, it, it's a process that I think democracy needs to have. Um, it, it can't just be, like I said, you go somewhere and plunk down a bunch of money and buy the media market. And so I, I think the challenge for the Democratic Party will be figuring out how you do this in a way that takes the just all the awfulness out of what happened last night. And it, it really was. It was painful to watch. And I will tell you this. Um, you knew something was wrong when the first statement said we were working on quality control or something, yeah, I mean, it sounded yeah, like yeah. I, I remember thinking to myself, first of all, in a hundred years, I would not have picked that phrase to discuss the voting because it literally did make it sound like something out of the Soviet era. And it made it sound <laughs> like somebody was changing numbers on a whiteboard. Uh, and, and, and I think that's just a terrible, terrible thing that, uh, that the party and the state suffered, but uh, there is something that's truly unique about Iowa. And we've, I, I think, both parties who've had trouble with this in 2012. Mitt Romney declared the winner, only to find out a few weeks later that Rick Santorum won. Um, so, the, the, yeah. The, yeah, the the party, neither party is immune to this. They've got to figure out how to make it work, or or somebody will. And I will say, last thing on this if the company that's working on the app was the one we think it is, um, it looks like Nevada might be using this app as well. So just attention, Las Vegas. Um, we, we, we might want to do, um, 
between shows, we might want to do a couple of trainings uh, on the app to make sure that in two weeks uh, we don't have uh, we don't pull the ship up from the bottom of the ocean only to hit another iceberg. Yeah, well, the good news is Las Vegas has a long history of zero tolerance for fudging with the numbers. So I would there's probably going to be an app developer who's going to meet a ball-peen hammer here in a week if they don't get it straightened out over there, and I have a feeling they will uh, in the Clark County tradition. Yeah, I'll, I'll wrap up my point of view with this with, I think I'm going to launch the Mend It, Don't End It campaign for the Iowa caucus. I would rather add a second caucus on that day that's more diverse uh, than lose the Iowa caucus. But I do think we're to the point where the Iowa caucus is too important for the Iowa Democratic or Republican Party to run. Maybe the national parties ought to come in and run those two first caucuses because this is a party affair. It's not the state government. Great idea. Uh, And then on to New Hampshire. Uh, let's talk about that. So today, you're Joe Biden. You know there's a huge shit burger flying in in the media cycle soon today. Uh, you're Pete Buttigieg. You know you might have a lot of good news. You're Bernie Sanders. You know that you're, the polling data is good in uh, uh, New Hampshire, a state you've won before, neighboring Vermont. You've got a lot to be happy about. Um, what do you think they do? And meanwhile, over at Klobuchar and Warren headquarters, what do you think the moves might be? Yeah. How do they use the next seven days to grab the race and take over? Yeah, I mean, look, I think if you're Joe Biden, you're really under the gun. Uh, I, I would The first thing I would do if I was Joe Biden is look at my schedule and make sure I've got enough events. Yeah, The schedule I saw had him at two events today, and I think some That's of the crazy. candidates had four to five. Yeah. I, I, I will tell you the biggest mistake that we made in Obama in 2008, and I take – a fair level of responsibility for this is we came, we landed at some hideous hour uh, in the pitch black of night after having won Iowa and our polling said we were up 10 in New Hampshire and we played, we played it safe. We were the underdog campaign and we played it safe and we tried to run out the clock figuring in five days it would do what Iowa did. And then nobody would stop us. We, we paired our schedule back. We didn't take questions. We didn't look like we wanted it. And if if I, the first thing I would do for any of these campaigns is look at your schedule and prove to the people in New Hampshire that you really want it. You know, it's that Clinton, the, the, you know, till the last dog dies thing. I I think they've got to really put the pedal to the metal here. I would get out there and make sure people knew that you were serious about winning this. New Hampshire is notorious for having a different opinion than Iowa. They want to put these candidates through their own set of paces. Mm -hmm. They're not going to rubber stamp what's come from somewhere else. Good news is there's nothing right now to rubber stamp. Um, But they've, these candidates have to prove it. I think if you're, You've got to make your own luck here, and you've got to make your own magic, and you've got to get out there and, and and try to win this thing. And I think if you're an underdog, if you were an underdog before, play it like an underdog. If you're the if you were the front runner, boy, and and you've just hit uh, a big big pothole in Iowa, double down, get busy, and get out there and prove it. I think these campaigns have it's going to be a long long week. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. You know, when I was working with McCain there. Uh, kind of our secret subtext slogan was "Screw Iowa." You know, New Hampshire, prove prove who the alpha is. Right. And if you're Biden, you throw the schedule out the window, and you throw because this whole thing about South Carolina is going to patiently wait for him to finish fourth again is crazy. That's going to crumble, and so yep. he needs to he needs to use the one asset he has now, which is the drama of the come from behind battling Joe against the odds, throw out the schedule. He's at midnight doing a town hall. The good thing is they're come. They, they, you know, it's not hard to build an event this week. 
uh, in New Hampshire because they're looking for you. But but Joe's got to be the man of the drama. They, they ought to get out today and say, enough of this bullshit. We know we lost Iowa. And so Joe Biden's going right. to go out and win and, and bank it all, you know, sell the house, round-the-clock events, everything you got. And hopefully that human drama story can become the center narrative. And then New Hampshire can resonate to, hey, here's something big and flashy we can do with a guy we kind of like. I think the other guy, you know, we talked about Buttigieg getting robbed last night. He's still got a lot going for him because he's going to get a lot of media wave coming. And he's got the same mm-hmm. secret weapon, I think, that McCain did, which is the independent vote does not have a lot to do on the Republican side right now. Uh, th- there's really no show over there. So that kind of yuppie Volvo vote uh, is going to be looking for a candidate. And with some momentum and kind of his positioning and generational style, Pete's got a window there to run up the run up the numbers. And I think if they're smart, and I'm sure they are, they're going to they're going to try to take it. So I think Biden's got a pretty clear path. Pete's got a path. Bernie has strength, but he's kind of on the defensive. You know, he's won it in the past. I think the expectations game for him could kind of go either way if Biden either has the miracle comeback or if uh, or if Buttigieg can really light up the independent vote with the Democrats he has and possibly beat or tie Bernie in New Hampshire, and then it's really a whole new race. It's true. I think if you're Bernie, though, the nice thing is you look at what happened four years ago, yeah. and if you hold on to some percentage of those vote voters, you're going to do really well in a week. Uh, and I think if you look again, not that we should draw direct analogies to, to Iowa, New Hampshire, but if you looked at the Iowa polling that was done before last night, he was holding on a, to a huge number of people that were with him in 2016. If he does that in 2020, he'll be just fine. Uh, I couldn't agree more with you on this idea of, of it, the potential for crumbling if you're Biden. This idea that somehow you're going to wait until South Carolina, I'm reminded of Marco Rubio's strategy of I'm going to finish third, and then I'm going to finish second, and then I'm going to finish first. Right, right, it's really right. hard to get momentum out of that. You, you, don't, you don't naturally come from third place to win. Uh, not to mention, let's talk about the fundraising here. Yeah. This is, you know, it's been said a lot in the last 48 hours. Campaigns don't run out of ideas. They run out of money. And... The end of uh, the last reporting period, Biden had about half the cash on hand that everybody else did. Uh, so he's already down on that. It's not they don't have the type of coalition that raises it quickly off the Internet. Right. It's very hand to mouth at this point. Whatever you're raising today, you're spending tomorrow. And let's be understand Super Tuesday with California and Texas comes two or three days, three days after South Carolina. Yeah, right. So you can't win South Carolina, raise five million dollars and impact Texas and California because all that media is going to be bought. So, like I said, I think if you're Joe Biden, uh, draw the play in the dirt and throw it really, really far. You, You don't you don't have anything to lose, because if you finish out of the money in both of these two places, we should mention this. I'm a big believer in the history and the data of these places. If you finish fourth in Iowa, uh, there's very little data that shows you're going to be the eventual nominee. If you don't win at least Iowa, New Hampshire, there's very little to believe that you're going to be the nominee. And I think if you're Joe Biden, as you said, go out and own that you didn't do well. I think I'm reminded of when Joe Lieberman said he was in a three-way tie for third in New Hampshire in 2004 and ended up in Three-way tie for third was was uh, apparently Connecticut for fifth. Um, you, you, you know, you, you don't. I love how you guys still hate Lieberman too. All you damn regulars. <laughs> no, no, no. 
it's not that I dislike him. It's just yeah, I, too clever by half. Yeah, it was like Amy last night trying to declare victory on her way out of fifth place or fourth place. You can't spin it. We take it for the voters are smart. They get it. Yeah, they 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 understand where these campaigns are, and I, I think. And look, in all honesty, it will matter more what you do in the next week uh, as it relates to New Hampshire than it did in Iowa. Um, it's just that overall narrative that, that he's got to do something to impact. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think um, your point about money is well taken. They're almost all under cash stress, even Buttigieg. Not Bernie so much because he has that endless recurring revenue coming in almost regardless of how he does from low-dollar Internet donors. And the glory about that is you don't have – the money comes fast and the transaction cost is small. Most of the money gets to you. If you're Biden, you got to go get to a city, a nice sculpture, an event – that's a plane, that's ours, that's cost. Cost of fundraising is much higher. Very hard to turn money around quickly. So you, they're under cash stress. So, um, you know, that's why the, the Amy's, and we should talk about Elizabeth Warren a bit, are, are under some real pressure to perform right now, or it becomes kind of a compounding feedback loop of death. And, yeah, you can bounce around to Nevada and something like that, but your, your, your whole campaign is about pulling back resources at the desperate moment you need them. And we're going on to Mayor Bloomberg, who, of course, has his own printing press for money in, in a bit. But let's talk a little bit about Warren and Klobuchar. What, what do they do? They, 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 uh, there's one debate coming. There are a couple of days of campaigning. Do you see a path for either to break through? Well, I think it would be interesting on uh, – depends on sort of where Klobuchar finished. I think she's clearly um, the editorial board uh, candidate. Both of them to some degree are. Uh, and, and that might get her a second look. I think if you're Elizabeth Warren, remember um, you, you've you spent time in New Hampshire, even if you haven't uh, campaigned there because as a senator from right. Massachusetts, that Boston media market where you're advertising ends up – in uh in a good part of of New Hampshire. So the expectations for her are going to be high. You you um traditionally candidates from Massachusetts, John Kerry, Mike Dukakis have done well in New Hampshire and they need to. Bernie in Vermont did well uh 4 years ago. And, and I think the the real danger for her again, she's got to go out and make her magic and she's got to hit something uh that strikes up a chord because it, if the result of Iowa is some order of Sanders and Buttigieg, and the same happens in New Hampshire, the field just starts to winnow quickly. Yeah. And if the narrative becomes this is a two-person race and the money goes to a two-person race and the media goes to a two-person race, it ends up being really hard if you're not one of those two. I've got a great convoluted sophist logic that would fit the mind of a, a Republican senator trying to argue about why not to vote for more witnesses or impeachment inspired by my old friend and current disappointment, uh, Lamar Alexander which is we now know that if you're endorsed by the New York Times and you're a woman, you're doomed in the Iowa caucus, even though 55% of the people who vote in the caucus are women. So there we go. The New York Times turns out to be the lightning bolt of real America death in the endorsement uh, sweepstakes. So, yeah, I think it's tough for Warren because of all those expectations, both her early success, which she kind of owned the race back in September, uh, to the fact she's from there, that media market hits 85% of New Hampshire. It ought to give her a lot more. That was also the plan of surging candidate Deval Patrick, who I don't think we've heard from in, in eight weeks. So uh, I think it looks rough for him. I think this is going to be the, the stage for the potential 
long shot epic Joe Biden human drama alone with a spear in the rain. Uh, can he come back? Can Pete get the independence and even robbed of his big night last night turn what could be a great news cycle coming forward into something? And then Bernie, who's sitting on a lot of advantages. Uh, but let's talk about the candidate the media is talking about endlessly. Two theories on this. One is Biden faltering is another piece falling into the diabolically brilliant master plan of Mike Bloomberg because now there can be a new old white guy, uh, this one with money and no worries about fundraising, so doesn't really have to win anything. That's theory one. Theory two is he should have gone to South Carolina because he could actually get into the race now for a week in Biden rather than wait all the way to Super Tuesday. So what do you think? Is this dramatically changed the Bloomberg thing? Is there still essentially a big long shot? You know, I think it's a long shot, but I will say if you're sitting in Bloomberg headquarters today, um, without having been on the ballot, you might be the biggest yeah. winner um, because the fault lines that you needed um, for your one in 10 chance of being the nominee are beginning to be seen. And, um, I think the other thing that's interesting, if you look at you could see this a few starting probably two or three weeks ago, um, his numbers in those Super Tuesday states in places that were doing polling before Iowa, New Hampshire, um, Michigan and some of these other places uh, were beginning to show Bloomberg ahead of of Mayor Pete you know, in third place behind mm-hmm. Biden and Sanders. And so, you know, look, don't discount a uh, a billion dollar marketing campaign. Um, you know, you can't sit and watch TV without seeing not just one ad, but ad after ad after yeah. ad. And I think I think there is a real possibility that, you know, he is standing there, as you said, unburdened by having to raise money, knowing that all he has to do is the signature on the check has to match uh, and the TV flows. Uh, the staff that they've hired is enormous. And, and, and I think there's every reason to believe that um, he could well end up being there on Super Tuesday waiting, uh, waiting for this race to be joined. The challenge, I think, for him is ultimately going to be I don't believe that his voter is a Biden voter. I, I, mm-hmm. I think the, the narrative that they've placed is if Biden falters, then Bloomberg is the person that fills that void. Um, in reality, the Biden voter is less likely to be um, a Bloomberg voter in terms of the demographics of it. So yeah. I, I don't know whether that fits quite as easily as that the 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 plug and play uh, plug and place narrative that the media might have. Yeah, the the short theory is that you know take Joe Biden, add stop and frisk, and then you have Bloomberg, which means you have very little. Uh, I, I look if, if Bloomberg is viable going into the California primary, I'm going to vote for him. If not, probably for Mayor Pete, one of those two. Um, we'll see we'll see where the race is because you know I'm not a socialist. I think the Bloomberg folks are doing a pretty good job of doing the long shot campaign where you start late and they need the perfect storm. So if you look at the perfect storm checklist, unlimited money, check. We don't have to worry about polls, which killed everybody else who's tried the Al Gore, Rudy Giuliani, wait around. Um, We need the 
the largest party regular who's not a movement liberal or progressive or whatever defaulter. Well, Biden now, unless New Hampshire's magical, check. Now they got two of them. So the last and untested thing is can the Bloomberg more center argument catch on and can they get by Mayor Pete who might be on fire and doing well if he has a good New Hampshire? I think the 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 one problem with their strategy, even as it's kind of coming their way and I think they're doing a good job of executing it. You know, it's just, it's a long shot to begin with is um, it's very hard to win the Oscar if you're not in the movie and the movie is February. We still have South Carolina and Nevada coming Four big contests, saturation media presence. So he, I think Bloomberg's doing a great job because he's got a story to tell. I will say for all the stuff about the identity of being an old rich guy, Bloomberg on guns, Bloomberg on climate. He has a very good mayor of New York city education reform he's got a pretty good story the question is when it rolls into march will all the positives that he's bought with all that television be as sexy as the positives you get from winning march from the free media and that that's what's killed everybody in the past but you know absolutely he's doing the best job of it because he has the unlimited resources and he's not hampered so we will find out and the one good thing for them that could become a bad thing i don't know it's a jump ball is he will get more attention now because he is on deck, at least in the media narrative. So he'll get a harder look in some ways, but more of a ride in others. And uh, it, it, it could be interesting. Uh, and I, I think the if Bernie wins New Hampshire, we can't underestimate how many of the regulars will have the Bernie fear, the Bernie panic will come on. Because the you know the Republican bubble, as you know, is all about, oh, if they nominate Bernie, doesn't matter, Trump can murder Melania on TV, it, he can't lose. Now, I actually think that's wrong. I think Bernie is an incredibly risky choice for the Democrats, but I believe in the tradition of other, quote, unelectable joke candidates in the in the CWDC bubble, like Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Carter, um, Donald Trump. You know, it, it is not insignificant that Bernie, who is well known in the new USC poll, the USC Dornsife poll, which I, I'm involved in, is beating Trump 47-40 nationally. You know, and they know he's the crazy guy Larry plays. Right. Uh, Larry David plays on TV. So, this idea that the country will never elect Bernie Sanders, uh, that the Republicans use as kind of their Sominex to be able to sleep at night, I think is 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 uh, not true. But anyway, a lot more race to come. Any any final thoughts before we move on to Trump world? No, I think it'll be, be interesting to see. I mean, you mentioned Bloomberg. We may get a preview of what Bloomberg looks like if he gets into this Nevada debate, right? Uh, that, that's coming up. I, I don't know. They've they've said they've started debate prep. I don't know whether they want to actually be in that debate because, as you said, um, two hundred fifty million dollars worth of ads speaking for you might be better than showing up at a debate. And I I agree with you. I think the the conventional wisdom on Bernie is is exactly that in D.C. and it's conventional wisdom. If yep. twenty sixteen taught us anything, it is never to say never uh, on who could win these races. And I, I just think there's a three lifetimes to play out before we ever get to November. And, uh, and I think the next, the next week is going to be as fascinating in politics as we've seen in a really long time. And the lesson of 2016 in a way is also the lesson. And this is what people don't think of, of 1980 because Reagan was treated like a right wing Bernie Sanders kook who can never get elected. And he went on to be a hugely successful president. I still have a shrine to him in my basement as I weep the tears of blood over this this Donald Trump. So let, let's talk about our fine president. Impeachment is going to, like a like a drunk at the end of a three-day bender, going to stumble in through the door and collapse on the floor probably tomorrow. We have the State of the Union tonight, which is always high drama 
uh, with the president and a teleprompter. Um, I think uh, I think the 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 thing is about to move on. I think for good or bad, the impeachment debate. I, I think the loose end is. You know, will the Democrats be able to get any traction for the idea of a censure, or do you think, as I do, that McConnell will just murder that one uh, out of the box, and and by the end of the week, we'll be we'll be looking forward, not back to all this. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think um, I, I think uh, the Joe Manchin censure thing is probably uh, more to give him some cover to be for something if he votes for acquittal on one or both of the articles of impeachment. I don't see that that's going to gain a lot of traction. Uh, I think this is going to go out a bit with a whimper. I I think the real danger, obviously, for Republicans is um, what information continues to come out. What what new things do we learn? What what else is in the Bolton book? What other email trails are there? The danger is they own this to a certain degree, to a large degree. And and Mm -hmm. I'm always... I will say it's interesting. Um, I know you're down on Lamar. I, I think one of the things that Lamar did, though, was begin to open up where I assumed Republicans would get to, quite frankly, several months ago, which is he shouldn't have done it. It's wrong. Uh, we can't have him do it again, but it's not impeachable. So th- th- there's some slapping of the hand for trying to get into the cookie jar. And quite frankly, they had played this out to where nobody was going to be held accountable for anything. Um, And now at least they're talking. I think it's mostly talking to themselves, uh, (laughs) but a game around some admonition in hopes that he doesn't do this again. Moving to just quickly to pivot to that, your point on the state of the union. I I think this is a fascinating and interesting time for the president. Um, He will likely have dispensed by week's end with impeachment. He gets a, big audience tonight. And and I think the real, the real challenge, if you're in that campaign and and they don't do set pieces as well, because quite frankly, they're not the set piece candidate. But if you look at the, if you look at the recent polling in Michigan and Wisconsin, you see that 60% of the people in those important States around that number approve of the economy in those States. But Trump's personal approval is in the low 40s. And his job over the course of the next several months is to take that approval number, personal approval, and get it closer to his economic approval. If he can do that, then the calculus for what the fall looks like uh, can change quite a bit uh, to his great advantage because the Democrats will be off doing what the Democrats do. Um, but if he takes that gap and that gap, instead of being 18 or 20 points is, is closer to say 10 or so, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, all of a sudden it's a very different ball game in some of those States. Yeah. You, you've nailed it. The, the great God or perhaps great Satan that looks out for Donald Trump has given him two great gifts. One, he now has a wonderful democratic symbol of incompetence last night that the process crazy media is going to talk about for a while. So if there's ever a time for him to grow up and become a real sane politician and do a bit of a pivot, it's at the state of the union. Uh, One out of six people, one out of six voters is what I call gap voter, which is somebody who likes the economy, but doesn't particularly like Trump. And if he can, if he can get half of them, He's really back in business. And that's what you can do in a state of the union. The problem is Trump is Trump. He's the atomic clock of being his brand of crazy. And I will bet money that instead of kind of reading the script and even letting, if he's really smart, he would let a little of the air, he would say something like, look, and I, 
I've learned my lesson. I've censored myself, uh, you know, some little thing to just kill off the whole issue. But that requires hubris and, 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 and emotional sobriety and all the things that Trump doesn't have. So he won't use it. The question is, how much will he miss the opportunity? And, and I would bet money, instead of pivoting to the economy uh, and working those gap voters, instead, he will be watching the media gush about Mike Bloomberg, which has been doing now for the last 12 hours in the wake of the, the Biden thing. He won't be able to resist a cheap shot or two. He'll want to get off the prompter and say, by the way, and, and, and be Trump. And he will step on his own, like he's done so many times before, on his own opportunity tactically to do a bit of a reset. So I think this will be yet another you know, squandered Trump moment. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they found a new team of psychiatrists or something, and you know the pharmaceutical uh, advisors have got it right, and he'll be able to read that prompter. But I'll bet either right before or right after or maybe even during of the State of the Union, he will pop off in a Trumpian way and and get a slappy fight thing going with somebody instead of reminding gap voters that he equals good economy and move his numbers up to the point where he's no longer in a cul-de-sac where Bernie Sanders can be beating him by seven points. And, and in fairness, most of the other Democrats as well. We'll see. It's a big test of do can Trump actually operate uh, strategically, or is he just going to be the usual creature of instinct reacting to cable television stories? Absolutely, it'll be uh, it'll be fascinating because I think it, it's a little Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. I mean, he he knows what has worked well for him, uh, and uh, but as you said, th- those voters, if he can close the gap with them, it's a much much different electoral calculus, uh, and I think that's one of the things that keeps him up at night. Well, speaking of that, I have to close the gap now with our mighty Hacks on Tap finances uh, because we've got engineers to pay, yes men who, who need their, their weekly check, the whole, the whole routine here. So I'm going to go away and pay some bills, but we'll be right back. You know, Gibbs, every once in a while uh, on Twitter, people will write in and say, Axe, you make me nauseous, but nausea is nothing to joke about. It's like getting stuck in the back of a car and you're kind of a little bit hemmed in and you just you get that feeling and it starts in your stomach. It's not. Yeah. A good and, and, and like you're on your way to something good, a, a celebration or party or something. And now you're nauseous and you can't get rid of it, except there is an answer now and it's called Relief Band. Tell us about Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. The product is 100% drug-free, non-drowsy, and provides all-natural relief with zero side effects, zero, for as long as needed. The technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients, but now through Relief Band, it's available to all of us. Here's how it works with Relief Band. It stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea. Then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach telling you that you're sick. Relief Band is the only over-the-counter wearable device that has been used in hospitals and oncology clinics to treat nausea and vomiting. If you know somebody who deals with nausea, Relief Band makes a great gift. I'm telling you, Relief Band works. We know from our own experience, we sent one to our engineer who often gets nauseous during our shows, and he reports 100% cure. Don't fall for those cheap bands you see in drugstores or on your Instagram feed. All right. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer 
just for our Hacks listeners. If you go to reliefband.com and use promo code HACKS, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to reliefband, R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D.com and use our promo code HACKS for 20% off plus free shipping. Okay, thank you, sponsors, for that. Robert, let's go to the mailbag. First, I'm going to do my plug. If you want to send us a question, uh, including what the hell happened in Iowa, because we might know in a week, you can send it to our special Hacks on Tap question email address. It goes right to the top, hacksontap at gmail.com. That is hacksontap at gmail.com. And while you're doing your electronic homework, Go on iTunes or your other podcast platform and give us a rating, uh, put down a review. Anything like that helps to get the old algorithm to push us out to other people. Except nobody in the Iowa State Party is allowed to touch iTunes regarding this podcast, okay? We don't need your bad mojo clamming up everything and uh, wiping us off the face of the earth with a digital error. So uh, sorry about that. Anybody else, you're totally welcome, and we love your comments. Thank you again for listening. Okay, now... Let's play the music. It's listener mailbag. All right, our first question comes from Rachel. Why in all the discussions about early states does everyone skip over Nevada, even though it comes before South Carolina, meaning the Nevada caucus? I'm sure there is a simple answer to this question. Well, you've come to the right people for simpleton answers, Rachel. Uh, But to continue your question, I'm never sure why the discussion about candidate strategies and who is expected to win where never factors in Nevada, and they just skip straight to South Carolina. Well, Gibbs, you're a veteran of the of the rolling uh, roulette wheels of Nevada politics and that caucus there. Again, like Iowa, it's not a primary, it's a caucus. It does come before South Carolina. It's kind of the intermediate step. What do you think? Uh, how does it work? And any candidate you see having a natural advantage? Well, I think it is interesting because I do think in the narrative we do tend to misplace it or or, or lose it a little bit. Uh, I think part of that is because Biden is considered so strong in South Carolina and there's been so much discussion of if he stumbles – you know he'll put it back together in South Carolina. Um, Nevada is is an interesting place. It is um, it's made up of some really big cities. Obviously, Las Vegas, uh, driven by a large union vote with the culinary workers there. Um, you know the 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 caucuses actually take place in some of the casinos. Um, so I I think it will be it's an interesting place. Um, you'll see Hispanic voters. Uh, introduced to the process in a much, much bigger way. Uh, and I think it really is up for grabs. Uh, we saw um, it play an interesting role in 2008 because Obama loses the total vote to Hillary, but wins the delegate battle because uh, we had made some stops in uh, uh, rural eastern Nevada and were able to run some vote up in these places. So I think there'll be some strategy to where you see the candidates and how you see the candidates try to build uh, their electoral advantage. But it seems to me like Nevada will be pretty wide open uh, for somebody to take advantage of. That's my instinct, too. I mean, it's really as you put it, it's a lot of Clark County. That's the huge thing, Las Vegas. And then lots of pieces which go everywhere from rural bunker land uh, up to Reno, which has always had a harder economic time and a little, little different point of view than Clark County. So I think the best way right now is to make friends in the culinary uh, workers and win New Hampshire. 
because momentum counts there too. Organizational game counts. I know Bernie's been working there, and it is the first heavy Latino caucus. And close by California, coming on March 3rd with a huge Latino vote, the Spanish language and English-Spanish kind of both language, They there's a connection there. A lot of Californians, uh, even big donors, drive out to Nevada to work on the caucuses. So it it is connected to California later. It's important to have a good showing, uh, and that bounce can help you in South Carolina. So uh, I think, Rachel, the media may not be paying quite enough attention to the Nevada caucus yet, but I predict that'll increase. All right, Mike, let me ask you a question. We've got it from, and I, I, I swear we didn't make this name up, Spike. Dear Mike, question from a fellow Michigander. What are your thoughts on how some of the senior staff on the Wall Street Journal's editorial page have covered impeachment? Paul Jago and Kim Strassel are both smart people, but they fall down on the other side of this issue than you do. It seems that no matter the actions of the president, they willfully stay in line and agree with whatever his defenders claim. Does this drive you nuts to see other conservative intellectuals defend Trump so robustly? Oh, great question, and it's good to hear from my old Uncle Spike back in Detroit. Spike, thank you. I'm sorry I missed your coming out of jail party. I was tied up, but uh, good to have you with us. I kid. It is a great question, Uh, and it's heartbreaking to a lot of us because we don't understand in the small but feisty never-Trump conservative world where I'm a boisterous member why a president who doesn't like foreign trade, doesn't like the Atlantic Alliance, has kept the peace (laughs) since the end of World War II, doesn't understand how government works and spends money in a way that makes Barack Obama uh, look like Scrooge McDuck is um, is somehow our new conservative hero. All, and I look, Paul Jago is a friend of mine. I have a lot of respect for him. But they have made a decision that when the Democrats are so bad, this is a relative contest. Uh, and Trump is on some conservative issues, judges, uh, lack of regulation, tax cutting, other things they care very much about the better choice. Now, I will defend them. They have criticized Trump from time to time, but it's often been kind of a criticism like a kitten's paw when I think a lion's claw is required, and I would wish they would show more of that sort of courage about Trump, but uh, for reasons they argue, uh, they have not. I would, I would. People who are curious about this ought to look back a couple of days. They wrote an editorial, I think two days ago, uh, about uh, Friday, I think it was, about Lamar Alexander, my dear old friend, um, and his vote and the logic behind his vote uh, against impeachment. It was a good argument for Lamar's argument. Lamar had an argument, which was basically we can never have partisan impeachment. It can't be one-sided because then it becomes just a tool to avenge an election. And I think that's a pretty good argument. The problem is in the current era where the conservative media machine or populist media machine and our weird Juan Perón cult-like president who can enforce his will in the primary has squashed the party so much it does not have an independent voice anymore. So if there can be no partisan impeachment, as Lamar argues, there can never be impeachment uh, because the Republican Party has surrendered into, into cowering dysfunction. But anyway, that, that is a good uh, article to read about how they make their argument. And to their credit, they have an argument. I just believe it is clearly the wrong one. Okay, it's time for... Call. Robert, what's your last call? Watching last night uh, the slow kind of train wreck that was Iowa, I am reminded uh, of the advice that I would give a, a political campaign, a political party, uh, a, a company, a business. When you are faced with 
a crisis and one that is getting worse by the moment, get out there and fill the void with some information and fill it with some good information. And I don't mean make something up, but I mean not having somebody on camera, not having a statement out there at the very beginning when they knew something was wrong to say, it is imperative that we get this right, not just that we get this fast. Um, and filling the void that ended up getting filled on cable television with conspiracy theories and everything from uh, misinformation to to disinformation. It, 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 it always happens this way. You always look back and you wish. And, and again, my advice to folks is when you have something like this, get out there and fill the void. Talk about what is happening be transparent uh, rather than these vague statements around quality control. I don't even, it's just, it, it all sounded like whatever we were hearing from them made the problem worse, not better. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You never win in politics by, you know, hiding and cowering in the corner. Grab the microphone and fill the message. Uh, I, I have kind of a double shameless quick uh, last call here. One, I have to do a little bit of business and thank my friends Michael Isakoff and Daniel Clayman over at Skullduggery, a great podcast. They had me on. They plugged Hacks on Tap. I tried to weasel out without doing a counter plug, but they held me to it, and I'm happy to do it. It's a great podcast, Skullduggery. Uh, mine is pretty simple. It's a quick note to Mayor Pete. Don't whine about last night. There's some whiny articles being tweeted around about getting robbed and dog ate your homework and it rained on your wedding day. Stop. Stop. Declare victory, move forward. Your message is working. Don't don't get caught in process. And I'd say this to any Democratic candidate. The less you talk about process and Iowa apps and whether or not the 1-800 line worked, uh, the more you're doing that, the less you're talking about your message. Get out and sell and uh, get back on offense. Put Iowa in the rear view mirror. Well, Gibbs, thank you for pinch hitting. We'll see if Axelrod ever got sprung from CNN. I think I just saw him doing the weather. Uh, and maybe we might have to do a rescue mission over there. He needs to be in a union, uh, but he'll be back next week, and we'll be hearing more from you throughout this season. Thanks again for being here after the great Iowa mashup on Hacks on Tap. Thanks for having me, Mike.